This morning's reading is taken from Nehemiah, verse 1, chapter 1, to chapter 2, verse 10. Nehemiah's prayer. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, 
so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Morning, everyone. We're starting a new series in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, as many of you will know, Nehemiah was the man responsible for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after the exile. But the title of this sermon is Making God's Vision Yours, because the thing that fired Nehemiah up and got him out of bed in the morning was the plan God had for his life and the plan God had for his people. And uh, as Christians, we want God's plan to motivate us. We want that, that to be the thing that gets us up in the morning and gets us fired up. But truth be told, it's actually quite difficult for that to happen. So we're going to watch Nehemiah in these first couple of chapters, and we're going to see how he did it and learn from that, hopefully. Now, before we get into our reading, I want to give you a bit about the history of this period so that we can think about where we are in the Bible timeline, for those of you who like this sort of thing. And if you don't, then just tolerate it. Um, this is right at the end of Old Testament history. So after Solomon's reign, a bit earlier on, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In 721 BC, much later, Sargon II of Assyria marched into Samaria, which is the capital of the northern part of Israel. And after one of, one of the longest sieges in ancient history, he uh, took Samaria and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, 721 BC. Now, at the time, the prophets were telling the northern kingdom, you're going to be wiped out by Assyria because you've forsaken God. You've, it's a flagrant breach of, cov of covenant. Um, you know, you've made a contract with God and you've broken it. So these, these are the consequences. But they didn't listen and Israel, the northern part, was wiped out. The southern kingdom of Judah was a bit better. And they continued for another hundred years or so, but they too eventually turned away from God. And in three successive waves, the Babylons crushed the southern kingdom as well. So in 605 BC, the Babylonians took the cream of Judah, that was Jehoiakim, the king, and also Daniel and other aristocracy. So when you read the book of Daniel, when you read about Daniel and his three friends, you're reading about the first wave of Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. There was a second wave as well. In 597, the Babylonians returned and took the priests and the leaders, including Ezekiel. So when you're reading the book of Ezekiel, you're reading about the second wave of Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. And finally, in 586-7, the Babylonians returned and destroyed Jerusalem, taking everyone into captivity. So there was no one left. And nearly 50 years after that, in 539 BC, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. You can read about this in the book of Daniel. And a year later, 
Cyrus the Great of Persia issued an edict to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's recorded in Ezra 1. Now at the time, the Israelites trickled back into Judah, only a few of them really, and they started rebuilding the temple, but they only got as far as the foundations. They did nothing more until the prophet Haggai came along 20 years later and told the people off for not rebuilding the temple. And I preached on this last year. I'm sure it's, all, it's clear in all of your minds. Haggai 1 verse 4, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, i.e. the temple, remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways. So Haggai said, Why is the temple just foundations when you've had 20 years of building? build the temple, which they did. And then a full 70 years later, a man called Hanani visits the cupbearer to the Persian king, um, who was a Jewish man called Nehemiah. And that's where we pick up the story, 70 years after the foundations, after the temple had been completed. That's where we are. Sorry, that's a bit of a sort of rush through that period of history, but I hope it gives you the picture. Now let's look at our reading for today and learn four things about this man, Nehemiah. Four things that will help us, I think, keep God's vision in our own minds. So firstly, his life was comfortable. It's like when someone drops into conversation, something like, uh, I was out in my private plane the other day, and um, he does something a bit like that. Because in verse 1, he says, I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, in other words, that is, I was in the winter palace of the most powerful man alive, surrounded by luxury and beauty and wealth and culture and entertainment and influence, and something happened. And in verse 11, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, don't think of slave when you hear cupbearer. Think more of butler because the king had to trust this man not to poison him, so he would have treated him well and paid him well. He's a very important member of the royal staff, and Nehemiah was known personally to King Artaxerxes I of Persia, the most powerful man alive at the time. So he knew what it was like to be wealthy and comfortable. (laughs) And straight away, I feel like we have a connection with Nehemiah there. He knew what it was like to live in a wealthy place where it seemed nobody had heard of his God and nobody particularly cared. And he was comfortable. He had everything he wanted, really. So, he was wealthy. What can we learn from his example in that situation? Second, God's plan was still his priority. It meant more to him than his comfortable life. Now, when we see that because... When he heard the news that Jerusalem was in ruins, he switched off his TV and unplugged his coffee machine. And in verse 4, he sat down and wept. And did he weep just for a few minutes? No, it says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Loads that we could say about that, about prayer and fasting and mourning and when we might do it and when we might not and all these kinds of things. But I only really want us to take one thing away from it. And that is that Nehemiah did something that is actually really quite difficult to do. He was deeply moved by something that had little impact on him personally. 
And sometimes this is what keeps us from making God's vision ours. Because apart from perhaps becoming a Christian, that affects us personally, it, it all just seems so far away from us. It all seems to be happening somewhere else and not where we are. Nehemiah would have felt like that too. He was far away from Jerusalem. He was about 700 miles away. But um, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the distance. I'm talking about the emotional distance he was from Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been in ruins for longer, much longer, than Nehemiah had been alive. Uh, Over 100 years. So Nehemiah probably never lived there. It was a pile of rubble. And Jerusalem was a, a very small, insignificant city compared with Susa, where he was living. Nehemiah lived in the opulent palace of the most powerful man alive, and he's deeply moved by this pile of rubble over to the west in Jerusalem. There was a huge emotional distance between Nehemiah and the walls of Jerusalem. And yet he sat down and wept and prayed and fasted for days about it. Now we have a similar emotional gap because our lives are so full that God's plan seems quite small in comparison. You can come to church with 100 people or you could go to a concert with 5,000 people or you could go to a football game with 60,000 people or you could watch a YouTube video that's been watched by 25 million other people. What's God's church in comparison? It's so small. And I think it can help for us to recognize that it has always been like that. You know, Nehemiah's living in the equivalent of, uh, you know, the, the YouTube center where people are watching videos, 25 million people are watching them. And he's worried about the 100 people in church on a Sunday, which is the walls of Jerusalem. God's plan has always been like that. It always seems small in comparison with what's going on around it. But third, he prayed, and that helped him to keep a good perspective. There was a time when if you saw a white cable hanging down someone's front, if you were my nana, you'd think, why are all these people walking around with white cables dangling in front of them? And if you were me, you'd think, that person's got an iPod. That's a thousand songs in your pocket, as the advert used to say. That's so cool. And uh, whether or not it was cool depended on how much you knew about it. It was either just a white cable or it was an iPod. Wow. And similarly, the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day were either something quite special if you knew what they were about or nothing and completely insignificant. And people who thought they were incredible, like Nehemiah, were the ones who were right. There really was something quite special about the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, you get the sense of Nehemiah's awe about this place when he prays to God. Verse 5, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And he talks in verse 9 about Jerusalem as the place God has chosen for a dwelling for his name. So they weren't just walls. They were the place where the great and awesome God who created everything had chosen to live amongst people. And if they were in ruins, those walls, what does that say about God? 
And this is how proper prayer can make God's vision yours. You're faced with a situation where God seems to have failed, just like Nehemiah was. And in prayer, you make this declaration to God. God, you are in charge, and I am your servant. Listen as I read the prayer of Nehemiah. It's so worth reading again. And uh, listen to... Hello, Joshua. Listen to how many times Nehemiah makes it clear that... God is the master, and God's people are the servants. Let me just say that again, because that was a bit of a distraction. I'm going to read the prayer. Listen to how many times it talks about God's people as the servants, and God as the master. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's, fa father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey your commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. Now, if you've lost the sense of God's vision and you find it doesn't really get you out of bed in the morning, maybe it's because you don't pray, but maybe it's because you pray like you're the master. God, please do this. God, please do that. We need to pray like the servants and say, God, you're in charge and I'm your servant. Open my heart to wherever you might be leading me today and to whatever circumstances you might be placing me in today. And when it looks like you failed, God, you are the master and I am the servant. Now, the leaders of Christ Church are committing, committed to um, helping everyone to pray more like Nehemiah, uh, pray more and better. And... Uh, don't worry, elders, I know I have seen the emails that have gone around this week. On Tuesday, we, we met uh, to discuss the Monday evening prayer meeting because we know that Monday evenings don't work for many of you. And um, being perfectly honest, some of you find the prayer meetings boring. And we don't want that to be the case. We want prayer meetings to be something that everyone wants to come along to at a time that suits people because they want to join us and pray. So there are a couple of ideas flying around and one is that maybe we'll use a Sunday evening every so often. Um, and, you know, building on the success of John's pizza evening last week, perhaps have a time of pizza and uh, then pray together and a message from God's word as well. That's one idea. There are other ideas in the pipeline. So um, maybe you think about that, pray about that. If you have really strong feelings of a, a time that you would love to meet with everyone to pray, then come and tell us. But whatever's decided in, in the long run, um, I'd encourage you to try and make it a priority to come along and pray with God's people. And uh, maybe the more of us get together, the more we learn to pray together, the better we pray and the more we can make God's vision our own and be the servants of our great God.
Finally, the fourth thing. Nehemiah prayed and then he went. The king saw that he was sad and he said, uh, what do you want, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, I want to go. This is verse four. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. That's another really difficult thing to do when you're wealthy and comfortable. In my experience, it's much easier to come and donate than it is to pray and go. Because you can come to church and you can donate a bit of cash alongside your comfortable life, but going involves leaving behind. And that's harder. It's easier to come and donate because you don't really have to leave anything behind. You can come to church and still be very comfortable and life is easy. Making God's vision yours includes deciding in your heart that the things you like are worth leaving behind if God asks you to. And so, is there something in your life that God is calling you to leave behind for his sake? I love that classic Christian book, The Cross and the Switchblade, by David Wilkerson. Who's read it? Show of hands. Almost everyone. That's amazing. Um, if you haven't read it, then you must, because uh, it's great. And if you think it's too charismatic, then we'll just hear me out on the bit I love. David Wilkerson was a country minister in the States who felt that God was calling him to give up his TV time and to pray instead. And um, he put it off for ages, and he basically uh, set God a test and said, God, if X, Y, and Z happens, then I'll know that you're planning for me to give up TV watching. And he knew that those things were pretty unlikely. And they all happened within sort of 24 hours. You know, it's quite an amazing story. So he gave up watching TV and he prayed instead. And that set him on the most amazing journey to the street gangs of New York, where he spread the message of the gospel. And hundreds of former gang members professed faith in Christ and became really vibrant Christians as a result of his ministry. So it's an amazing story and well worth a read. And some people are called to pray and go in that kind of dramatic sense. But you might think, well, David, David Wilkerson was a minister, so, you know, God's already called him to go. But let's remember that Nehemiah was just in ordinary secular employment. He had a secular job. He had no particular revelation from God. But God placed it on his heart to pray and go. And so could that be you? Maybe God is calling you to mission work somewhere else in the world. Maybe he's just calling you to go and knock on the door of a neighbor and share Jesus. It's difficult to do when we're wealthy and comfortable. But Nehemiah sets us a good example. Now, some of us really need to hear this message as a challenge, a bit of a slap on the wrist, really, because we are so wealthy and we're so comfortable that actually if Christchurch dwindled into only a handful of people, we'd be concerned, but not concerned enough to stop watching Netflix and, you know, give up all of our creature comforts to pray and to fast and to mourn for days on end, as Nehemiah did for the walls of Jerusalem. So maybe we need that slap on the wrist. But that's not the only message of this reading, or, it's even, or even the most important one. And uh, there are a million different lessons we could learn from this reading. I can't talk about them all, but I can talk about the most important one, as I draw to a close. And this most important message that comes from our reading 
is the key to making God's vision yours. The key to making God's vision yours is to understand this. Nehemiah, through no particular reason, just because it was on his heart, was 100% committed to the success of God's plan to restore Jerusalem. He was 100% committed. He had no reason to be. He was so comfortable, but he was committed. And here's a picture of Jesus who was 100% committed to the success of God's plan to save you. He had no reason to be, but it was on his heart and he came to earth to save you. Listen to all these links between Nehemiah and Jesus. The name Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. Those of you who are in my sermon on Boxing Day will remember Simeon and Anna. And they were waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. And that has a whole load of Old Testament background, like Isaiah 40, verse 1, where God says, comfort, comfort my people. And the word there, comfort, is the same as the first part of Nehemiah. So Simeon and Anna found that comfort not in Nehemiah or any Old Testament hero, but in the baby they held in their arms, in Jesus. The Lord has comforted by sending Jesus. Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem were broken and his people were, were in trouble and disgrace. Well, God looked down on a broken humanity who were in trouble and if everyone's secrets were out in the open, disgrace. Nehemiah left the wealth of the palace and he repaired the damage himself. The Son of God left the glory of heaven to live as a poor man to repair the damage himself. Nehemiah prayed for the success of his people and he prayed for his own success because Nehemiah's success was his people's success. Jesus intercedes for his people and has paid the price of our sins himself and has risen from the dead. That success is our success. Jesus' success, just as Nehemiah's was the Israelites. Jesus' success is yours and mine. So that's why the first part of our new church mission statement is good news to share. Because this church exists not just so that we can all follow the example of godly Nehemiah and all be really good people. It exists because Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, and his success is ours. We have a Bible passage to go with each part of the mission statement. And uh, the passage for good news to share, which Chris preached on last week, is this. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift from God. And this sermon is called Making God's Vision Yours, and it begins with the liberating news that you are already more perfect than Nehemiah could ever have been if you have trusted, trusted in Jesus. Because Jesus' success is yours. That is God's vision. 
that people should be saved by his power and not through anything that you could do. And that is such a weight off our shoulders that when Jesus says, pray and go to whatever he might call us, that is not a burden, but it's a joy. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we've seen the example of Nehemiah and how he was so committed to those walls of Jerusalem that seemed so far away, we thank you that Jesus was committed to the welfare, the well-being, the salvation of each one of us. We pray that that would be a very personal thing for each one of us, that it would not um, be something that's for other people, but not for me. But Lord, please may it be for us. And may that help us to make your vision ours. Amen.